You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Stick around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, We are continuing our series, our family value series, and we're asking the question, why is family hard? Now, family can be glorious, and it should be but it's not always easy. And how do, we, how do we work through those times when it's not easy? And we've, we've looked at a number of different stories to, to really dive into this question, why is family hard and what can we do about it? Um, and this week we're going to look at a uh, particular question I think um, we've all faced at one point or another. Um, but how do we help those we love who are struggling spiritually. How do, we, how do we help them? What does that look like? Sometimes people are just disappointed with their circumstances. You know, life just kind of comes at you, and it comes at you, and at you, and at you, and at you, and, at you, and finally you're like, God, I can't handle anymore. And, and you know what happens next? Life just keeps coming at you, and at you, and at you. And you're like, no, Lord, I, a long time ago, I was done. Nope comes at you, comes at you, comes at you, and you're just finally like, God, what is going on? Maybe you've seen someone go through that kind of experience. You're like, how do I help them? How do I journey with them? Sometimes people lose their way. They become either rebellious or they get in the wrong crowd and they just, they decide everything that they've been taught, like, that's not for me. How do you journey with them when they struggle spiritually? And then, then some of us have experienced hard, hard circumstances with, within the church. And that experience just gets in the way of us being able to connect with God, like in everything that we've ever learned. And you've probably seen someone like that, or maybe that's your experience. But how do we help them? What does that look like? How do we journey with them? What's, what does God want to do in the midst of that? Well, to find some answers, we're going to take a look at the book of Ruth, and we are going to cover two chapters really well, and two chapters we won't cover very well at all, but we'll, we'll get there. Um, we'll just talk through this story. Um, some of it we'll cover in our footnotes podcast, which sometimes there's so much information that we can't put it all into Sunday morning. And so we add it to our footnotes podcast that usually comes out on Wednesday. You could gain access to that podcast through our website. But to start off our story, we meet this family. We're told in the days when the judges govern that there's a fam- there was a famine in the land and Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Chilion are Bethlehemites, and they sojourn to Moab. Good news is Moab is only 50 miles. But in our next scene, quickly within the story, Elimelech dies while in the land of Moab. And Naomi is left with her two sons. Now, Malon and Chilion, they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. 
And apparently Elimelech was there when he got married, but uh, he was dead already. So it's just how that story went. Um, they lived there 10 years and then the boys died as well. And Ruth, I'm sorry, Naomi is left with only her daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. And so in our next scene, Naomi heard that the Lord had visited his people and giving them food in Bethlehem. And she says, go, return to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And they lifted up their voices and they wept. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth chose to cling to her. In our next scene, Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or take back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. And so the two of them journeyed back to Bethlehem. In our next scene, the women of Bethlehem see Naomi and they say, is this Naomi? But Naomi responded, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which is a word that means bitterness and is connected to another Israelite story. And we'll talk about that in footnotes but she says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me? The Almighty has afflicted me. Now, did Naomi really go out full? Sometimes we don't have perspective on our own story. Or sometimes we leave parts of our story out of the conversation. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like we share our story with people, but we only share the parts that, we will, that help us tell the story that we want to tell. Because I'm not sure Naomi really felt that she went out full. The boys' names are sick or weak and failing, pining, annihilation. This, can we bring up that next slide? Is that up there? No, that is up there. Forgive me. Um, I'm not seeing the next slide. That's what I'm not seeing. This has been going on for probably 30 plus years. The boys are at least 20 years when they get married. They live for another 10 years. Naomi and her husband didn't see a good story for quite some time. A long season. And it's not that Naomi doesn't believe that there is a God, but her perspective on God seems to be distorted, like she put on the wrong glasses and tried to live life that way. She sees a harsh God, a God that judges, a God that's angry with her. Wouldn't that be a hard life to live 
when your God is always against you. That's Naomi's story. And so that's chapter one. In chapter two, Ruth said Naomi, and then in the next scene, she says, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may feign, I might find favor. My mouth is dry this morning. And Naomi replied, go, my daughter. Now, to give you some context of what's going on here in Leviticus 23, we see these words. Israel, when you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of the fields, nor gather to the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord your God. And so in that culture, the people, they grew, they grew on a, on a plot of land and, and they were subsistence farmers. In other words, what they grew, that's what they ate for the year. But if your plot of land didn't happen to grow anything, hailstorm hits your plot of land, or you leave for 10 years and you come back and no one planted anything, what are you going to eat for that year? The people of Israel were called to, to only harvest so much of their land, to leave the edges available to the poor, to the alien. And Ruth somehow knew this was in the scriptures, knew that God had said this and trusted that God would provide people to help. And so we see here an act of faith by Ruth. And sometimes more than our words, it's our act of faithfulness that helps people reconnect with God. It's a simple act of our faithfulness that helps people reconnect with God. And God uses that to resurrect their faith. We're told that Ruth departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened, she happened, wink, wink, nod, nod, to come to the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz who was of the family of Elimelech. Like she just, she just happened to go to a close relative's field. Or do you think the Lord led her there? Uh, I was thinking about the story. Um, was it the, the boy and his horse, the horse and his boy, something like that. Uh, C.S. Lewis and uh, C.S. Lewis describes God redirecting us sometimes through this picture of this lion that comes along and, and, and roars at this horse, it's this boy that's on his horse. And so the, the horse wants to go this way, the boy wants to go this way, but the Lord redirects the horse and his boy. God could get us where we need to if we start moving. The, the, the property that we're moving into. I didn't know for sure that that was the property. I, I suspected that was the right space, but I knew if we started moving towards it, that God could redirect us if we were heading the wrong direction. She happened upon 
the portion of field belonging to Boaz. And so in our next scene, Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Or in the common vernacular, shoot dang, who dat? Thank you, Logan, for that. Um, and the reaper said, she is a young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. She's the Moabite woman, returned with Naomi. She's from Moab. Now, this could be a chiasm. We've talked about chiasms before. It's a literary device. It's a way of of drawing your attention to something. And maybe, maybe the guy was responding to Boaz was, was being rabbinical in, in his uh, communication. Or, or, hey, boss, did you hear me? I said Moab. Hey, boss, did you catch that? She's a Moabite. You know about the Moabites, right? Well... We probably don't. He did. But Deuteronomy 23 says this. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord, none of their descendants, even to the 10th generation. That's 300 plus years. God says, I am so fed up with the Ammonites and the Moabites. I don't want them to worship me not even for 300 years, 10 generations. How many generations can you connect to in your family lineage? I could connect to like four or five or six. I don't know who was 10 generations ago. My son might, he was doing some research recently. We'll have to ask him. But 10 generations shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord because why? They did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. They didn't bring you food. They didn't bring you water. And they tried to curse you by stop that, the Lord says. And maybe, maybe the helping hand was trying to help the boss understand this woman's history, this woman's story. See, some people, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that because I want you to watch what the Lord does through Boaz. I want you to see what the Lord does through Boaz. In our next scene, at mealtime, Boaz said to Ruth, come here that you may eat the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. And Boaz also said, listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in any other field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one. Stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you when you are thirsty Go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that Boaz provides for her bread and water whose ancestors would not provide bread and water? 
Is that, is that what's going on here? Let's look at the next scene. And Boaz also said, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord. Is this a, is this a blessing? Is, is he blessing her and not, not cursing her for what her past? The God of Israel, under whose wing you have come to seek refuge. So, so he provides bread and water and a blessing, maybe to undo what was done before. But he goes further. Boaz, in the next scene, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, Let Ruth glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. And you shall purposely pull out some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. In other words, we we're supposed to provide up to the edges, like let, let Ruth glean up to the edges. And we could, if we want to, we could stay, stay at arm's length away. He doesn't want that. He wants them to actually make sure that she has more than what she's able to glean herself. See, I believe God, that Ruth believed God was true to his word, and so she went out. I don't know how she knew. Maybe Naomi told her, and hey, this is supposed to happen, but I don't know if it's going to happen. But somehow the Moabite knew the word of the Lord and she trusted it. And so she takes a step of faith. And she even believed more than her mother-in-law because her mother-in-law doesn't go. And maybe she was of the age that she couldn't. But Ruth moves out in faith. And she believed God to be a generous God. And he was through his people. That's how God's generous. Through his people. Now, some would have turned their back on Naomi for going to Moab. You, you went to the enemy. What were you doing? Uh, for us, it'd be like someone going to the Taliban. Someone going to the mosque. Like my church, I'm, I'm having a hard time here. It's been years of having a hard time. Our church isn't showing up. I'm going to go to the mosque and I'm going to start worshiping there. Like that's modern day context. Taliban, the mosque, something like that. In the Cold War, heading off to Russia. And some would who have turned on Ruth for, for being a Moabite. You are my enemy. My God doesn't even want you in his presence. Like, couldn't we just quote that verse and just use that as a hammer to bludgeon a person? My God doesn't want you for 10 generations. Come, come see me in 301 years. Right? Couldn't some justify that through the scriptures? Haven't some used the scriptures to justify just some awful 
awful thinking. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. You had a child out of wedlock. Deal with it. You left the church. Enter reason here. Good luck. Don't come back. See ya. Wouldn't want to be ya. I got a question for you. And I think this is a big question. How are those people, whoever they are, how are they supposed to experience resurrection if we as a church, as a community, choose to stop being generous? And, and I'm not just talking with our, with our dollars. I'm not just talking with our money or a credit card. I'm talking with our influence. I'm talking with the opportunities that we provide. I mean, how hard is it for someone who comes out of the prison system to to get a job in this community. It can happen, but also it's pretty dang hard from the friends I've talked to. When someone comes out of addiction, how hard is it to get back into community? How hard do we make it for people when they've made mistakes, when they're past it's colored a certain way. How are these people supposed to experience resurrection if we stop being generous? And so in our next scene, Ruth, she gleans the field until evening and then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah barley, which is about 64 pounds. 64 pounds. That's a, that's a fair wage for a day. That's a fair wage. And that's a, that's a rich person's haul for a day, not a poor person's haul for a day. In our next scene, Naomi said, where, where did you glean today? Where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. This, this is what hope looks like. This is what faith looks like. This is hope restored. This is faith reborn. This is a resurrected life through someone else's generosity actually two people's generosity because Ruth choosing to be there, like she didn't have a, a red penny to, to throw down into this, this relationship, but her choosing to be there every minute of the day and completely change her life. That is a generosity in itself. And maybe you don't have any pennies, but you got time. But Boaz what a generous man. What a man that could see beyond the fact that this person has a past. This person has a history. This is a spark of faith. 
And then what Naomi does in, in Ruth chapter three, and we're not going to cover it here because um, I'm already going to go over time. Um, but we'll talk about it in our footnotes podcast. So, so take a listen. But what Ruth or what Naomi does in Ruth chapter three, I think really tells us that she is trusting the Lord, that she trusts what, God's, what God says. She trusts God to lead his people well and to work through his people. And so take a look at Ruth chapter three. Um, Naomi becomes the matchmaker, uh, but the much better version um, versus, versus Mulan. Like, like you got Mulan matchmaker and Naomi. Like not so good, very good. So just for comparison, but pay attention to footnotes for that. But we see in the next scene, we're going to pick this up in Ruth chapter four. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And the Lord enabled Ruth to conceive a son. And the women of Bethlehem said, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and the sustainer of your old age. Like, does it, doesn't it sound messianic? Doesn't it sound Christ-like what she's saying here? This is the lineage of Christ, by the way. Christ doesn't come without Ruth and without Naomi. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And somehow, Naomi is no longer bitter. Somehow, through the generosity of Ruth and Boaz, changes the story. It changes the story. Implication is this. You, and this you, me, you cannot resolve the spiritual struggles of others, but you can be present with them. You can't resolve it. You and I don't have the ability to do that. That's, that's God's game. God's the one that, that flexes big on those kinds of things. I have no flex when it comes to that. I'm, I'm a pastor. I get paid to be here. I do this full time. I can't resolve that for you, your spiritual struggle. If I could be there, I could be present. I, I asked some friends that have been through that season, that, I, that I've watched them go through that season and come out the other side. And I asked them, can you think about your experience of people journeying with you and let me know what the best things people did and what the worst things people did. And here's some of the responses. Helpful. Um, let, me, let me say this first, before I tell you what they said. Naomi self-identified as being bitter, right? No one else had to tell her, hey, your name is Mara. No, she took that name on for herself. We got to be careful about telling other people what they're struggling with. 
Again, there's a number of reasons why people struggle, struggle spiritually because they're disappointed with their circumstances. They lose their way, they rebel, or they have church hurts and you know, they, they, they face a tough situation, an ungodly situation within church and it leaves a mark. And we don't always know people's experiences that led to other experiences. And maybe we just see the tip of the iceberg of why they are where they are. So we need to be careful about how we label people and what kind of advice that we give without any kind of personal investment. Like if you spend months and days, months and years with me, like you have room to speak into my life. But if you hear my story for 30 seconds and you want to give me a quick verse like I haven't heard that verse before, thank you very much. Have a great day. We have to be so careful about when and how we share and how we label people and, and those kinds of things. But listen to this. So, so listening was helpful. Empathizing, having patience. Whew. You, if you love somebody, you love them and they're struggling spiritually and, they, and they're having a hard time connecting to the God that you love so much, like being patient in those moments I'm going to use I statements. I struggle with that. That's hard. Waiting. Realizing that trust has been broken and spiritual abuse leaves deep wounds. Try to put yourself in their shoes. It takes time to heal and rebuild trust. Someone else said showing up at 9 p.m. with pie because they saw a text from you saying, I need someone to go to coffee with. You're showing up at nine. Why are you coming over now? Well, I just saw the text and you say you need me. I'm, I'm going to be there and, and I'm bringing pie. Let it be known that pie is always redemptive. <laughs> Even at nine o'clock at night. Unhelpful. Fixing. That's why we don't have fixing in our small groups. Quoting Bible verses. Implying that the wounded person is bitter. Heavy emphasis on submission to authority. When someone has experienced spiritual abuse from somebody in authority, that's typically how that works. Telling them that they need to just submit to that person or submit to that authority. That's the wrong conversation. It's the wrong conversation. I mean, going back years ago, we, we could see the Catholic Church and all their failures with, with sexual misconduct, right? And now in the evangelical church, we're seeing the same kind of pattern that we have to address as evangelicals. You don't tell that person just to submit to them because they're authority. It's a wrong conversation at that time. Someone also said, saying that you will be there, but never setting a date. I'm going to journey with you. Let me get back to you, Blynn. Not helpful. I want to read you a quote of, of a friend. Um, I've seen this gal. I'm pretty sure that when I first met her, 
that she was not a follower of Christ or she was a spiritual infant that was just doing just about everything she could think of the wrong way. Uh, she was just, she was a hot mess. So much brokenness, so much chaos in her life. But I've seen her grow in, in the Lord, and I've seen her make some mistakes and then come back and, and grow some more. And I've seen a community of people just absolutely love on her. And, and some of this quote and some more things that she said, I could just see so much growth, even in the last few years that I haven't seen her personally, um, at least on a daily basis. But she says this, okay, so I've been thinking about this question, and the most important thing that people have done for me when I was struggling was meet me exactly where I'm at. Kind of a common theme, right? Three of three people said the same thing. Not where my potential to be in the future or even where I fell from before the spiritual attack, but right in the mud. She goes on to say, it's very important to understand that this is holy ground. This is, a, this is area sacred because we are vulnerable and scared when we get here. The biggest baggage is guilt and shame and it weighs so heavy. Those things are from the enemy and they feel like hell because that's where they come from. We don't have to shame people. There's plenty of shame there. We don't have to shame them. They already feel it. I think of the Apostle Paul one moment, the Lord is saying, the Lord revealed that to you. And the next moment, the Lord's saying to, to Peter, get me high me, Satan. Like, I, I want to make sure I'm never used by the enemy to do his work. See, every time God says something to me to turn me around, it's powerful. He doesn't shame me. God does not need to use shame. That is not his tool. He will lovingly kick me in the pants and tell me to get on the right path. But it's always powerful, and I know he loves me every time he says it. We have to be so careful in our approach to people who are struggling spiritually. And it's God's part to draw people, to convict, to reveal truth, and to cause growth. Now, God might use us. But I found in my life that God uses me more when I don't know he's using me than when I think I'm being used. When I plan what I'm going to say, I don't always get it right. Not that God's not going to use me. Not that God's not using us. Not that we shouldn't keep moving forward. Not that we shouldn't strive forward together to grow up as believers but every time God speaks, it's powerful. And the most important thing that you do for a person who's struggling spiritually is being present with them. Choosing to be there. It's powerful. Second implication is this. Your generosity, in, in all its forms, can reveal the heart of God to those who are struggling spiritually. Your generosity, and I'm not just start. don't start with the dollar bill. Get there last. Your generosity with your time. That's what, that's what Ruth did. 
your generosity with your thoughts about them, the way you talk about them when they're not there. Your generosity with opportunities. That's what Boaz provided more than anything. He provided opportunity for, for Ruth to succeed. We'll talk more about that in, in footnotes. There's a book that we use um, called When Helping Hurts. When we approach, when we take our approach to benevolence, it's, uh, it's important that we give people opportunities more than resources, but also resources. Your generosity in all its forms can reveal the heart of God to those struggling spiritually. Some next steps. Pray, asking God to set the timetable. You know, as much as you love them, as much as you're concerned about them, as long as much as you're shedding tears, your God in heaven hasn't stopped thinking about them for a moment, for a second. Your God, your God is always at work. I'm not always there. He is. Pray, asking God to set the timetable. Number two, continue to build relational capital by being there. Choose to be there as much as it depends on you. When they leave and they go to another land, you can't do anything about that. But when they choose to come back, you could choose to be there. Boaz didn't didn't provide from a long distance. Like he went right to her and he told his men as she's coming along, drop stuff for her. Like she's not, she's not the plague. Number three, share your God stories. Share what God's doing in your life. Share your own spiritual struggles. Share all of them, even the hard ones. Whatever you've experienced, share that. Whatever you are experiencing. Like sometimes we don't want to tell people what's going on because we're afraid to offend them. That's your story. Talk about your story. Sometimes we don't want to tell people the hard things that we're facing when it comes to God because we don't want to discourage them. It's true. It's real. Let's be real. Our God has big enough shoulders for what's really going on. Tell all your stories, all of them, even the hard ones. Number four, seek ways to undo the curse that they lived. Seek ways to undo the curse that they lived. Only do your part, though. Don't do their part. Ruth had to show up. But Boaz said, man, I know the curse that you live under. Like your children and your grandchildren, like David, will become her grandchild. Can't go into the presence of the Lord unless we undo the curse, which is what Boaz did. And that became his grandchild through that act, that first act of faithfulness. Like he understood God's heart more than the curse. God's grace is always bigger than the proclamations made against us. His grace is always bigger. God's grace is always bigger. I don't know if I could say that enough, but His 
grace is always bigger, guys. Can we believe that? Can we buy into that for ourselves? Can we buy into that for other people? That his grace is always bigger. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a new church in Missoula, Montana. If you're in the Missoula area, we would love to have you join us for worship on a Sunday. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church forward slash give. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you have a blessed week. We'll catch you on the flip side.